Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest uh, here on West Coast Live is the author of The Metaphysical Touch, Pages for You, Ten Women Who Shook the World, and her new novel called The Delivery Room. Will you please welcome Sylvia Brownrigg to West Coast Live. Thank you very much. Thank you for uh, coming into the broadcast. It was a long way to come. Long way to come. Uh, Sylvia Brownrigg is the mother of my daughter and of my ah, son. Ah. Uh, and we're married. So. But we came here in separate cars. But we came here in separate cars. And so, uh, and so, Sylvia has written this wonderful book that's been uh, published in England to great acclaim, and just sort of to let you know. Uh, I met her once, uh, I met her for the first time on my radio show when she was touring for her first book. And uh, now we have family, and, and uh, but she's written a book, and so we've thought about, uh, I mean, she is somebody I would interview in any event. <laughs> Better, <laughs> you'd have to. <laughs> so uh, then we talked about how we might do this interview, and Sylvia decided that she would interview me. So that's what we're going to do. So I, am, I, am I really turning the microphone over to you? I figured, I figured that'd be the, the big... Maybe I should just hold the microphone. Yeah. <laughs> the big question, who gets to hold the mic? That's the big question in most marriages, isn't it, really? Who holds the mic? <laughs> or is that just our marriage? <laughs> no, I think it's probably a good metaphor for many of my marriages, you know, who, who, who holds the microphone. So uh, let me just ask you something. Is our, our daughter's okay? <laughs> Our daughter, the, the screams of our daughter are no longer audible, so I assume oh, that she's fine. You've locked her in the car? <laughs> <laughs> she's there. All right, so. So I have a question. Um, I'm going to start talking about the book just to make sure you read it, you know. Um, <laughs> it is dedicated to Sedge, so he. Um, oh, it is. <laughs> you didn't get to the first page. That's not a good sign. Um, so, um, one of the main characters in the novel is a, is a therapist. Um, she's a Serb therapist, and her name is Mira, and she is practicing in London. And um, I'm wondering if she's the kind of therapist you would choose for yourself if you had a therapist. You know, I, uh, Mira is a, is a very compassionate woman, and one of the aspects of, of her life that I liked was that she had this very rich interior life and, and although I know that the reviewer in The Guardian said that I'd like to have this woman as my therapist, I found her, perhaps because of her training, she was reluctant to say what was really on her mind, that it seemed to be some part of her schooling of therapy, that she had to let the characters, all of whom wanted to have children or were dealing with children they didn't want to have or were unhappy with their children or were happy with their children, I mean, she couldn't necessarily say what was always in her heart. Yeah, it, it, at one point, I know when you were reading, you found her reticence, which is part of the element of the story, frustrating in, in the sense that you wanted her to speak more and to give more. And so I figured you might find her a frustrating interview subject if you ever had to. <laughs> her, uh, I have had interview subjects like her where you know her answers to questions, for instance, uh, she's Serbian at the time of the Kosovo bombings, and 
one of her patients would ask her a question about that, and she'd say either, hmm, or thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was, and the, that part of the story came out of my having that kind of experience with therapists where you were guessing and mapping onto them what you imagined their lives to be, but didn't actually know. So this is the imagination then of, of, a, of the patient to the therapist. And one of the things that I've found about it is, is that you had also an insight into the patient's life because the patient's, uh, the, the therapist's husband, Peter, turns out to have a rare cancer and to perhaps be dying of this in the course of the book. So here are people coming to the, the room to describe their problems. Meanwhile, there's a larger war going on outside. Internally, there are problems dealing with their own happiness and issues of children. And the person they're telling this to is, uh, has a spouse who's perhaps mortally ill. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the great sort of um, inequality of the patient doctor relationship when analysts or doctors are trained more formally where they have to hold it all in and they reveal nothing. Um, and I suppose that's the advantage. I mean, uh, she, she wouldn't be a good subject for your line of work, but she is for me because I get to imagine <laughs> what goes on in the interior of that, of that character. Um, so um, we know that in researching the novel in 2003, you um, stayed behind in England to look after our son who was two years old at the time while I went to Bel Belgrade to do some research for the book, and I was wondering if you were terribly disappointed not to be able to go along on that research trip. <laughs> <coughs> I think I had mixed feelings. I mean, I would have been curious about, uh, about Belgrade, uh, but I think I, it startled me to realize, wait a minute, you're going to Kosovo. No. I didn't go to Kosovo. It was too dangerous. You went to Serbia. Yeah, I mean, Kosovo was, was further south. Belgrade was, I mean, I can't remember when flights resumed to Belgrade, but when this was 2003, and the bombing was in 99. And I think flights were, didn't go into Belgrade for some time, but I, I think they probably had started in 2000. So, I mean, it is true when I got there in 2003, there was still a lot of bomb damage, as I think there still is. But I was really startled to realize you were going into this place of, <clears throat> of very deep, mortal, sectarian... Uh, combat and, and uh, the sequelae of which we're, we're still living with today. And, oh, you're going there? Oh, and I think you were also pregnant at the time. Yeah, I was, I was although I was just learning that with the person whose screams we heard earlier. So perhaps the <laughs> it all started in Kosovo. Um, no, um, I was wondering if you sometimes wished you could feed me geographies for future novels. I wonder if my, my Hawaiian novel might be coming up, or perhaps my, my New Zealand novel. Or <laughs> well, I, I know that some authors like to go places, movie producers like to go places to, to set a book someplace they like to go. But it seems to me that the books that, that you've written are very much about places where you have established friends or have some very personal connection rather than kind of a, a landscape scenery attachment. So maybe I should start making Hawaiian friends or you should start. <laughs> I'd like to see your Australian novel. There we go. There we go. Well, actually, one of the things I was, I was thinking about is, so this, this novel is very English. It's set in, in London in the late 90s, and, and most of it takes place in London, although there is this Serb character. Um, and I, as you know, I lived in, in London for several years before moving back here, but I also partly grew up in England. Um, 
and it, within the story, there's the Serbian therapist, but most of the patients are English. There's an aristocrat, and there's a there's a sort of crotchety Englishman, and then and uh, there's one American patient, but mostly it's English characters. And when I was living in England is when I wrote most of my fictions that were set in the U.S. And I sometimes had English friends who were surprised by how American my fictions were. Um, and I was wondering when you read this if you were at all surprised by how English it was because some of the readers of it have commented on how very English the idiom of the language is. Well, it's tricky for me to say knowing that, you know, and having spent time in England with you and, and knowing about that part of your life to sort of separate that out from who you are and to read it. In, there's a section I'd like to, to read, just a very brief section uh, from, this, uh, from this novel here. And this is the story of Mira and Peter, Peter, the therapist's husband. And he is English and she is from Serbia. And the war is going on at the time in uh, Beograd. Mira still has family there and thinks about them. Sometimes when the phones work, talks with them. And it also gnaws at her. Peter, for his part, urged her to think of other things. He could see how the news corroded her, and though he did not blame her, he tried to nose her out of such thoughts, perhaps, yes, as a dog might. It made her feel more than ever that the English were an alien citizenry, washed up on the shore of her life like some blunt, opaque sea glass. The English neither loved nor hated with the rooted, historic passion she had grown up knowing. They hated, rather, with a slow, sly simmer, although if drunk, one football fan could pummel another into a bloody mass and not much regretted in the morning. That phlegmatism may have been one of the reasons she had made her home with them, yet it was a reason now that they could seem, on a bad day, a damp people, never on fire. The English were lizards, Mira had once declared to Peter. Their blood ran cold. Yet she treated them. They were her patients. They came to her for solace. Whatever color or temperament their blood, she must not lose hold of her work. Peter said it often, and it was true. It was the ballast. It was the one fixed place other than her love for her own Englishman, for Peter. And her work was to hold and soothe their particular pains. She must get on with it. She must keep listening. And if all that mattered to a person was the birth or not of their beloved, wanted child, if that was what all war and famine and blood-poured violence reduced to, and nothing was important about vengeful religious hatreds and lustful grabs for power, and a century or three of colonizers and tyrants and on and on into the darker ages, well then, her job, Mira's, was to sit still in herself and listen. A doctor, a wise German woman Mira had encountered in her training, who had helped persuade her that this was work worth doing, this Dr. Baum, had told Mira always to find within her the answering voice to that of the patient. It was a constant challenge. The task was what made this work, if one did it properly, extraordinarily demanding. Thank God she did not have children. A person could not, Mira believed, have children and patients both. The best doctors, Baum had told her, were those with quiet lives, whose noise and fury were expended in the engagement with their patients. And so, if someone came to her eaten alive by the pain of losing her baby, Mira must find an answering pain, unspoken of course, that would give her voice or even her silence some resonance, some truth. Mira was not a mother. She never had been. She had decided early in her life that she did not want a child. 
early in Yugoslavia for a complexity of reasons after she had seen how the experience changed her sister. Which was not to say there had not once been that possibility, that there had not once stepped a sequence of days in which a new life had tentatively resided inside her. That, to me, uh, sort of describes, I mean, so much about her work, her imaginings, uh, the difference between the English and... Uh, but, but what was curious, though, too, to me as a, as a reader is that the English are known often for their reticence, though we know in, in reality they're often not. But she, in her professional life, was in some ways reticent. There was a character that interested me. You, you gave uh, nicknames to all the characters who came in the morning, Madonna, uh, the bigot. For instance, the bigot would take off after her for her Serbian connections. And she had to sit and sort of take a lot of stuff on the chin. A couple of times she let her guard down, but uh, I wondered about the imagining of all these different voices that would come that that she heard how uh, how they sprung up in your in your head i mean you would disappear in the mornings i wouldn't see you for days it would seem and you'd come back in an altered state it's a good thing you looked after the children wasn't it <laughs> um, yeah they i mean definitely these people sort of lived within me i think i think while i was writing it i think it was um interesting i didn't realize this till i was some ways into it that i had a, a serb character um, that there was another, that one of the main characters was also not English, and that, that all of the English characters, however English they may be, are also seen through the eyes of somebody who's really deeply not English. And so um, a, a, an English friend of mine who read the book said, it, it's, not just an, it's not just an English novel, it's also a novel about Englishness, which I wasn't necessarily planning to do, but it sort of having so much in her mind and in her perceptions uh, enabled me both to write the English characters and to see what they would look like from her point of view. And the irony is that she is this formally trained therapist, so, or, um, so that her work is such that she can't, you know, she's, she, she can't be voluble and emotional. That's not the nature of the work. The nature of her work is to be calm and quiet and in a sense of sort of parody of that kind of English reticence. Um, but internally, she sometimes wants to Sometimes she wants to embrace one of them. I mean, there is this one woman who comes to them, uh, comes to see her who's lost a, a child late in pregnancy, who's just devastated, and she wants to be able to hold her. The, the woman who's having fertility issues, she sometimes has this quiet thought that what she really wants to do for this woman is just give her some soup and give her, you know, fatten her up because she's too thin, and she thinks that this would probably help her on the way towards having a, a baby. So, but, but that's not part of the formal training. <laughs> chicken soup for the patients. <laughs> right, but perhaps it should be, right? Um, so, um, no. I, I was, one of the things that um, the, you and I experienced a loss together um, that was related in a sense to the loss that that patient uh, experiences. And my, one of the things I can do as a writer if, if I go through a very painful experience is, is, is work through it and meditate on it in, in fiction. And um, so that's sort of one of the ways I can respond to going through a, a pain or a painful loss. Um, and I've now written about that experience sort of fictionally in this novel, but I also wrote an article about our experience that was recently published in the uh, Guardian newspaper in, in England. And I wondered um, what it's like for you to see experiences, I mean, you know, experiences that you shared as well, transformed either into a fictional work or into a non-fictional work. Is one easier than the other? or? I'm more comfortable with it being fiction, uh, but, uh, but the the nonfiction piece also was very 
very moving and it sort of relived all the moments. I mean, it you know, brought tears to my eyes. But you want the microphone back? I do. I do. No, 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 I just had a... Um, I'm trying to be a good interview subject. It's a little tricky. It is. It is. Um, I appreciate the effort. Um, we, um, no, but this was, this was making me think about the, the wider question that because we have various friends who are writers and who write about their family or their spouses, either fictionally or non-fictionally. Um, and I had one friend who wondered whether it's actually not employees, but rather spouses who should sign at some point a non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> I wondered if you had a view about that. Or spouses' friends who might take a story and use it in another book and go, what? Why'd that end up in that book? I mean, but I think it's one of the... Uh, uh, Risks, I guess, it's often spoken of. If you if you live with a writer, then um, you'd you'd better have a little place where you you say this is not for publication. <laughs> Don't say anything about that. This is just but, but you can't be responsible. But I mean, one of the things I I think though is is that as what novelists do is they transmute fact into an emotional life to make it live on the page to be able to convey to a reader a sense of the um, emotion, of, the, of the, 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 the breadth of feeling that just mere facts wouldn't, wouldn't carry. Right, I mean, that, that's certainly part of the kind of uh, the fictional alchemy, when the experience is transformed into something that draws on the same feeling, but, but it, it transforms. And then, I mean, what I found is that sometimes, in this case, surprisingly, I wrote this novel very soon after the loss that the novel is related to. I've had other experiences where it's five or 10 years later, you know, and that in, in the meanwhile, I channel the emotion. I mean, Pages for You, I wrote when I was also going through a very difficult experience, but it had nothing to do with being 17 and falling in love, which is what that novel is about. So I think sometimes it's hard to predict which, which timing is when. Do you, I have a question. <laughs> if I can get a question here in edgewise. <coughs> I mean, every, every one of your books uh, has been uh, different. The Metaphysical Touch Pages for You, um, very different books. Uh, Ten Women Who Shook the World, a collection of, of, of stories that one reviewer said sounded like a sound of it. Sometimes only you know, a dog whistle. I mean, just it had, was it frequencies sometimes outside human pitch? And, and one said it was like a... I meant that in a good way. Uh, and then another was, uh, it was like diving deep into a pool of the imagination. And, uh, and then this, this book too, they're all so different. And, I, and writers I know often talk about the risks of doing different kinds of books, whereas some people expect a writer to do the same kind of book again, but different, and again, but different. It helps the marketers if you do that. Um, it helps the whole publicity machinery. If, if a brown rig book, oh good, there's a brown rig book coming, we know what that means, and everybody's gonna be ready for it, and the same people are gonna want it, and um, that would be useful. Um, you know, people who are readers of mine who really responded to Pages for You, which was this uh, passionate love story about these two women, um, will not find those elements in the delivery room, which isn't to say they shouldn't read the delivery room, but they shouldn't read it for those same that same sort of element. Um, I mean, for me as a writer, I, I, each, I like to discover something new in each, each book, but, and, and I'm always giving myself sort of um, uh, challenges in structure or tone or setting. Um, I, I like to keep myself interested, and I, I wouldn't be interested in becoming a genre writer or even a writer who's 
works took a more predictable shape. But as I say, I mean, it's evident that the marketers would be happier if, if I could do something. I remember when you were first reading this, um, this book aloud to me. We were sitting in an Ashland restaurant. I think we were doing a show. You were reading me the first couple of chapters aloud. And it was a way that you liked to hear the book uh, and try to follow it since by reading it aloud. And you did that with me a couple of uh, months ago with a new book that you're working on. And then suddenly you showed up and you presented me with a completely different other book that you'd written of a completely different style and, and character. And I mean, do you like to, uh, you work in this kind of privacy? Yes, sometimes more than others. I mean, um, th for some reason, this thing I wrote most recently, I felt I had to write undercover. It's a little unclear why. But um, I was working on it. This has happened to me before. I was you know, working on, a, on one project. And I think this is what happened, actually. I was working on another project, which I had told my agent about and friends about and a writing group about. And so it, it had already become far too public. And I think the more public it became, in a sense, the more withdrawn I became from it. Um, and so then, as the more I talked about this book I was writing, which I did write, you know, 80 or 100 pages of, um, I suddenly sort of had that out there, distracting everybody, and then I sort of scuttled into a corner and worked on something else for four or five months, um, which nobody knew about, and so nobody could ask me any questions about, and so it, you know, nobody could have an opinion about it, and that, that actually turns out to be often a better way for me to work, I think, is um, sheltered from... Um, you know, the sort of gaze of other people. I mean, I've talked to friends of mine who are writers about this who, you know, you break out at a certain point uh, with any luck. Um, and after the point you break out, you people are watching what you're going to do next and are asking, asking you questions ahead of time. And, and it's a very different way to work when people are, you know, interested, you know, in advance in what you're writing and want to keep track of it and maybe even offer opinions about it. Um, and I think quite a few friends of mine and I have found that experience rather deadening of the writing process itself, which, which has to have spark and, and surprise and challenge and you know, strange turnings, I think, to have that kind of life in it. All right, Ron, the director has just given it, we're out of time for this segment here. So, do you, so you could do what I do, which is sort of keep talking. Uh, <laughs> And, you don't or ask me another wrong. question or something. Do <laughs> you have another question? I do have one other good question, which is, um, I was just thinking about, <laughs> but, but Ron, I defer to you. <laughs> no, I was just thinking about the fact, back on the sort of, um, the, the perilous position of being um, cohabiting with a novelist, I was just thinking about the fact that there are sometimes things you tell Sylvia Brownrigg, the novelist, which you flag as things that are for the novelist and, and not for the wife. <laughs> I wondered if you wanted to talk about that at all. I, I think that there's, there's something that might have some sort of emotional fraughtness to it, but I think that if it's in the context of this might be good material that I'm happy to tell you about in that context, uh, here, this is for Sylvia Brownrigg, the novelist, rather than, you know, some... In a way, it's kind of to put it outside the marriage in a way and just say, can we talk about it in another context? What? All right. Apparently we're out of time. <laughs> okay. The book is called The Delivery Room. It's currently uh, only available in England. Published by Picador, The Delivery Room by Sylvia Brownrigg. Thank you very much for being on with us. My pleasure. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here. And we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.